Well, let's take a walk back in time for a moment. Over the holidays, we've had a couple of weeks off before then, uh, a lot of weeks um, at work, at sports camps. So I have not been around uh, town church for uh, a long, long time. I haven't jumped shit. We haven't as a family gone elsewhere. It is great to be back. This is the one thing we have missed more than anything, uh, being with you, being with God's people. But let's take a walk back in time because uh, over the holidays, uh, I got to go back to where I grew up uh, to visit my parents. Kerry got to go back to where she grew up to visit her parents. Uh, and, and isn't it always the case that when we go back to the places where we used to grow up, for some of you, we'll be in Bista. And here you are, you've not moved away. But isn't it the case if you grew up somewhere else and you go back, you always take a trip down memory lane. You can't help but reminisce. You can't help but think, oh, I remember this time when I was uh, walking to school or in uh, in my case, I walked on these hills. We camped there uh, as a set of teenage boys. They were good days. A trip down memory lane. Look, what we want to do this afternoon is we want to walk back. We want to take a trip down memory lane, not to... At the time that we grew up, but time before the summer. I don't know for you if that seems a long time ago. It does for me. Um, Back into Romans, where we started out in January. We're going to go back there. We're going to remember what we've learned so far uh, in the book of Romans. We've been looking at Jesus over the course of the summer. We've been looking at the miracles and Messiah. It's been a welcome break, uh, I think, for some of us. Uh, But today... I propose we take a walk back through Romans. We get our bearings, we reminisce, we remember where we got to, where we've come from. And then we'll introduce chapter 9, the first few verses. You'll have read with Gleds. The chapter 9, it's like the Tyson Fury chapter of the Bible, the heavyweight chapter of God's word. We've got it all in there. We've got God's choosing people. We've got his work in election. We've got predestination. We've got God's purpose and pleasure. We've got God's sovereignty and salvation. We've got the place and the role of Israel today. We've got it all in there in chapter 9. Uh, and, and yet we're not going to go there today. It's a gentle intro back into Romans. Before next week, uh, we go big on that content. Because I think the first few verses of Romans chapter 9 are the, the gateway into such big theological, doctrinal pieces of God's word. The first few verses of chapter 9 are the way in. The clue to unlocking why Paul writes what he does. And if we miss those, and I think I've missed those for a long, long time in my life. If we miss those, then the words of chapter 9 be, can be very abstract and, and, and kind of deep and out there theological truths. Paul doesn't want them to be that. Paul wants them to hit home. So we see Paul's pastoral heart at the beginning of chapter 9. So we're going to do two things. Let's take a walk back down memory lane into Romans and then we'll grapple with the first few verses of Romans chapter 9. That's the plan. Back into Romans chapter 1. If you've got your black uh, Bibles, little uh, journals, um, do get them out and cast 
uh, your minds back there, turn the pages over, look at the notes that you made there. If you haven't and uh, have one of these red Bibles or access to one of these red Bibles, then do uh, pull it out. Because we're going to go right back to Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 to 5 of Romans 1 is the summary uh, of all that then Paul writes about. Here's what Paul uh, has to say. Let's read together uh, those verses in chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus... Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience That comes from faith for his name's sake. Here's Paul right at the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome. And you know the church in Rome, perhaps a few house churches together. A mix of Jewish converts and Gentile believers. Uh, That's a really wild mix of people at that time. And you'll you'll remember through Romans that, that Paul is addressing both. And sometimes he goes to the Jewish converts and says, hey, hey, look, do you remember what you, you were placing your hope upon? I'm going to pull the rug from under your feet and show you that it's now new. It's now Christ. And to the Gentile believers, he said, do you remember what you first trusted in? Let me remind you that, that this is it. This is everything that you need to believe in. And here's the summary in verses one to five. See what Paul is saying. It's all about the gospel. I'm not going to focus in on current issues of the day that hold people's attention. No, 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 that's not me. It's not my job. Paul's saying, I'm not interested in climate change. I'm not interested in technological advancements. I'm not interested in politics, says Paul. Not that those things are not important. But of the ultimate importance is the gospel. And all of those things and other things of today are made sense through the lens of the gospel. Paul says that it's all about the gospel. It's all about the good news of Jesus. And Paul in those first few verses, he says, look, look who the gospel is, whose it is. It's the gospel of God at the end of verse 1. You see, the gospel is God's. Gospel's not mine fundamentally. The good news of Jesus is God's, it's his, it's his plan, it's plan A. He holds it, he's in control. And the gospel's not a newfangled idea, the gospel is old. Look in verse 2, he goes on, it's been promised long ago, communicated through the prophets that we have in the Old Testament. It's all about the gospel, the gospel is God's, the gospel is old. It's not new. It's not made up. It's there in history, foretold through the prophets. And the gospel is all about Jesus, the God-man. It's all centred on him. Born as a descendant of David, sent as the son of God. And the gospel is centred around the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's my summary, says Paul, right at the beginning of Romans The big theological weighty letter that Paul writes. If I were to ask you what the gospel was. If I were to ask you whose is the gospel. 
If I were to ask you, how old do you think the gospel is? If I were to ask you the summary of who the gospel is all about, you'd be there or thereabouts if you've been a Christian, I'm sure. Similar to Paul's summary at the beginning of Romans chapter 1. If you're not a Christian, those few verses in Romans 1, I think, help us understand what the good news of Jesus is all about. Whose it is. And of course, then in the, the next few uh, lines in verses 16 and 17, uh, we have an understanding of, of what the gospel is powerful to do. Remember the crucial words in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here's what the gospel is powerful to do, says Paul. Again, right at the beginning of his letter, the gospel is the means back to God. It's the way back to him. It's the way of salvation. It holds the power to make us right with God. That's fundamental to his message. And I need to be reminded of that today. The gospel is not an add-on to life. The gospel is not a means of living a better life. It is the power to save us from our sinful condition. And the consequence of living within that. And you see my friends, that's what they don't like about what I believe. It rubs against their understanding of what religion is. My friends think I'm a a decent guy. You wouldn't believe it, but they do. They think I'm a good lad. They think I'm okay. They think I I choose church and and being a Christian as a means to just make me better. It just works better for me. It's something that I I choose to do, and, and, and that's okay with me. They think that I'm good to begin with, and this is just an add on to living a better life. I had a friend just a few hours ago in a coffee shop. And he looked at me, he usually sees me in sportswear, and he said, what, what are you doing on a day like this? I looked, my, looked at myself in the window and I, I thought, what am I doing on a day like this? Should I have shorts on and a T-shirt? I said, oh, I'm off to church. He's like, nah, no, you're not. I said, I am. Whoa, fair play to you. And it's fair play to me because he thinks that that's just an added option for me. And it's good for me. It works for me. But you see what Paul says. And Paul would say this to the friend that I met a couple of hours ago. It's not an added option. It's not an extra. It doesn't make me and life better. It is fundamental in bringing me back to God. It's fundamental in dealing with the situation that I find myself in. Lucas chapter 1 verses 18 to 321 describe the enormity of my problem. Do you remember the time that we spent there? I'm going to remind you briefly as though you needed reminded. And the thing is I do because it describes the enormity of my problem. God's wrath at our unrighteousness, at my unrighteousness. 
God's wrath against the, the whole of humankind. None are exempt. Not even the Jews that Paul is speaking to. The Jewish nation. Chapter 2 verse 5. Because of your stubbornness. Your unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath against yourself. For the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. God is right to be angry against sin. He's good and he's holy. Chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. My situation is desperate. These verses describe the enormity of my problem. And we don't like it. If I grasp that, if I see that with humble eyes that only God can give, then we see the wonder and the majesty and the great glory of God's solution. Chapter 3, 21 to 4, 25, justification by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the heart of the good news. It deals with my horrendous situation Verse 23 of chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. This is what makes me a Christian. This is it. It's not that I'm good. It's not that I'm better than others. It's not that I'm morally right. That's not what makes me a Christian. It's not what makes you, dear friend, a Christian. If you are one, what makes you a Christian? What is it? Is that I simply trust that Jesus was good unlike me. That Jesus then was able to take my place as a sacrifice. That God poured his wrath on Jesus instead of me and I receive my new status, my acceptance, my my righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. I accept it through faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. I recognize all of what Paul describes in chapter one, verse 18 to three, 18. I recognize that, that I'm not right. And I trust that God's done something about it through Jesus. And then chapters 5 to the end of 8. Paul describes what it looks like to be found in Christ. This is what it means. You've been saved from God's wrath. You now live in the realm of righteousness, not sin. You're united with Christ in chapter 6 and 7. No longer under the reign of sin. You still sin in chapter 7. You live in both the realm of sin and righteousness at the moment. But because we have a new master, the spirit, the spirit who lives within, he enables us to live out our new identity. He enables us to fight against sin. And then chapter eight, therefore, Paul says there is no condemnation. Remember the five weeks we spent in chapter eight. And then right at the end of chapter 8, there's no separation. And the Spirit's job is to convince us of this. And you and I, at the end of chapter 8, are meant to cry out, 
brilliant. Oh God, you are brilliant. Oh my, the God of the Bible is great. That's why Paul writes his letter. For the Jewish convert and for the Gentile believer to go, oh my, oh my, isn't God super? God is the helicopter pilot. Lowering the winchman, who's the Lord Jesus Christ, into a desperate and dangerous world. And the Lord Jesus Christ has pulled me to safety. Thank you, Father God. That's where we're meant to end, at the end of chapter 8. I know it's hot, and I know it's hard, but that's the wonder of the gospel. There are times this summer, I think I've gloried in the gospel. I think I've enjoyed thinking about such truth. I know I have. At times it's gripped my heart again afresh. Times I've loved singing uh, words of truth and reflecting on all that God has done through Christ. Grace alone and by faith alone I come back to him. I've enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed. But there are times, many times this summer. There are times that it's not been that great. It's not been super news. It's been okay news. Average news. Sometimes I've not even thought about the gospel. Sometimes I've walked away from the truth by my life, by the things that I've done. It would not. If you looked on my life, you'd not think, whoa, God, Lanks is on fire for Jesus. And here's the reality of life. The ups and the downs. We'll go through life with um, apathy and lethargy. There'll be times we'll be high, there'll be times we'll be low. But when we hear the good news of Jesus afresh and, and we, we trust in it and say, Lord, make it new for us. From chapters 1 to chapters 8, then it's the Spirit's work just to nudge and convict and to comfort and to say, you need to hear that truth again. I've needed to hear that truth again over the course of this summer. And Paul wants his readers to get to the end of chapter 8 and go, God, you're great. I hope you can say that, God, you're great today. No matter what life looks like, the high or the low, God, you're great and thank you. But, but there's still a serious problem as we go into chapter 9. Yes, those who have accepted Jesus now have all the promises for God. That's good news. Yet... Those who have not accepted Jesus are still under the curse of sin and death. And at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul says, Being a Jew does not qualify you to receive the promises of God. Likewise, being a good guy who lives in Bista, being a good girl who has a respectable job, who's proactive in their recycling, Who's diligent in their parenting. Being one of those good people. Do you know you're still under the curse of sin. If you've not responded to the good news of the gospel. 
And before dealing with the big issues of chapter 9, we get a glimpse of the Christ-centred heart of Paul, of the Apostle Paul. Before we get our heads around deep theological doctrines, we see the compassion of Paul for his fellow Jews by birthright only. Let's read verses 1 to 5 with this big problem still looming of people think they have a, a right before God as the Jewish nation that Paul addresses think they do. Paul says, hold on a moment. But we see a wonderful compassionate heart. Let's read those verses again, verses 1 to 5, and let's just have a look quickly at these words. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. See, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Look at Paul. We get a, we, we, we get a feeling of how he felt. He's desperately sad. And he loves them with a, a Christ-shaped love. We've talked already about Christ taking the curse of death for the sake of those that he loved. And, and Paul is saying in these verses, if he could, he would do the same. Paul says this is a tragedy that the nation of Israel, the Jewish ancestry, he's saying it's tragic that they've not got it, that they don't see the Messiah for who he, who he, who he is. He says it's a tragedy. It's on the same scale of the tragic events that we see in Morocco and furling before our eyes. A tragedy. And Paul is saying it's on the same scale. He's deeply sad. He's got great sorrow. There's unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because verse 4. <laughs> if we're not a Jew by birthright, we owe everything to their heritage. Paul is saying, look, to them belong the adoption of sons. To them the glory of God, the covenant promises, the law, the worship, the promises and the, and the fathers of the faith. If the Jews are not enjoying the blessings of the promises of God, it's a tragedy because it's there for them. But he's not pointing the finger. There's no grounds for anti-Semitism with Paul. <laughs> he loves them. I'll lay down everything if only they would trust. Do you know, I, I, I'd become accursed. An anathema is the word, devoted to destruction for the sake of my people. And as I've got my head round Paul's feeling for his people this week, in contrast to my feelings for the people around me, as I've got my head round that, Oh my, it's made me stop and think as I see Paul's heart, as I see 
the unceasing anguish of Paul for the Jewish nation. As I think about the people of Bista that I do life with, the parents of the boys in the football team, as I think about the young people that we served at at our sports camps this summer, as I think about the friends in the running club, as I think about my neighbours, do you know what I'm quick to do? I'm quick to judge them. I'm quick to point the finger. I'm quick to point the finger on their morality or their sexuality or I'm quick to move on. I'm quick to frown, screw up my face, shake my head at their beliefs or way of living. And then I'm quick to lose heart and doubt in the goodness of God that he can save them or would like to save the people that I do life with. And I'm quick to accuse God of failing to keep his promises to his word and quick to doubt in God's plan for salvation. I so lack compassion. And you see, it's my theology that dictates my actions. My lack of trust in God's promises, my frustration of not seeing lives changed around me, and it's wearying. But instead of being gripped with compassion, my heart becomes hard. And I point the finger at people and I ultimately point the finger at God. Not with Paul. Not here in Paul's example. And Paul second guesses what the next question will be. And he second guesses my, my question. Has God failed? It is the spirit even failing to take control of my heart that I would not have compassion for those who do not trust in Jesus. Look at verse 6. This is a statement. It is not as though God's word has failed, says Paul. No, God's word has not failed. No, God's word will never fail. No, God's word is living and active and it cuts like a sword. And next week we see the wonder of God's salvation. We see God's faithfulness to his promises. God's word succeeding and not failing. We'll see that in Romans chapter 9. And we'll hold on to that truth and we'll ask for the Spirit's help to keep changing us. And keep giving us compassion for the people in our lives that do not yet trust. Paul is sad for his people. He's sad for the Jewish nation. I want to be sad. I want to grieve for those around me that do not know Jesus. And I will do that when my theology is right. And when the Spirit's helping me to see how wonderful the good news of Jesus is Can I give you some homework this week? Is that alright? I don't think we've ever given homework at Town Church. Here's homework. To read through chapter 9. To read and to ponder it. And to write down any question. That you have around Romans chapter 9. Because there are some big, big questions that I have. When I come to it. I've got another week to delve into God's word before I try and tackle it in preaching uh, next week. So do some homework. 
and write down any questions that you have and then we'll see if we can answer some next week. But for now, we'll stop and we'll, we will reflect. We'll take our theology, our understanding and turn it into doxology, into worship. And we'll praise King Jesus. And we'll sing to God be the glory. Because when I least understand it, I have to turn to him. And when I'm least compassionate, I have to turn to him and, and say, God, take my eyes off myself. Fill them with you and your wonder. Remind me again of great gospel truths. And then send me out in the power of your spirit to go and worship in spirit and in truth. So why don't we stand and sing of this wonderful gospel truth that we've reminded ourselves about this afternoon. Let's go for it. If you're able, let's stand and sing. Thanks, Ben.